Should children as young as kindergarten be taught some form of sex education? One state Republican lawmaker says at least 23 local districts are teaching sex ed to K through fourth graders and she wants it to stop. A California kindergarten teacher is facing outrage after discussing gender identity with her students. Frustrated parents across the nation are planning a protest of public schools over what they call pornographic sex ed curriculums. We preach abstinence to our children and to save sex for marriage between a man and a woman. The problem is we still think that sexuality is taboo. What I really want to instill in my students is that body agency is really the core of understanding health. Hello and welcome back to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and I am joined by... I am your co-host, Shah Jahan Khan. Hello, Sadia. Hello, Shah Jahan. So I am back in the studio, but you're still in Boston. I know. How does it feel? Um, feels lonely, I guess. We are missing you here, so hopefully we'll see you back in the studio soon. Yes, hopefully soon. How's everything been going since our uh, our, our last couple of episodes? It's been going well. Apparently, the mask mandate is off in New yeah, York. Yeah, I just heard about that. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I think other cities are also kind of following suit. So yeah, kind of, it's this weird thing where I think kind of like last year, people are cautious. It's like, okay, is this thing over now yet? I mean, I'm so used to wearing it. I feel like I'm missing something if I don't wear it. So I still wear it. It's funny with my, my partner, Lauren, is like, look, I have not been sick at all. And it really, because she she gets sick a lot normally. And she's like, I'm just going to keep wearing this thing. <laughs> that makes so much <laughs> sense. So today we are interviewing somebody who has accomplished a lot and you'll introduce them Shah Jahan right sure yeah absolutely so our guest is Justine Ang Fonte she describes herself as a child of colonization student of decolonization and a disruptor of health education for basically the past 11 years Justine is an intersectional health educator known for their workshops in sex health consent and porn literacy as an educator, Justine founded the Health and Wellness Program at the Dalton School in New York City. They've also co-created Raised Pine, an annual skip performance led and written by Filipino women, and serves on the board of directors for Roots of Health, an organization bringing reproductive health classes and clinical services to the women of Palawan, Philippines. Justine's definitely a guest that talks the talk and walks the walk with their community involvement in public speaking from Columbia University to classrooms all over the country. Their mission is to promote agency, empathy, and intersectionality to sex education. So I guess without further ado, we're excited to have you, Justine. Welcome. Justine, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I am so excited, not only because of the work that you do, but how unapologetic you are about everything that you do. And we have plenty of questions for you. <laughs> Sounds like you've done a lot of Googling of me. We have, actually. We just want to start at the beginning. You are sex health advocate, educator, and we want to understand what it was like for you growing up, what kind of conversations around sex you had in your household especially because your mom is a physician. So I'm curious to know. Yeah, the answer is very short. Hmm. We did not have any conversations. So 
in my school. I was at a K through eight Catholic school, and uh, the closest we got to a sex ed class was in fifth grade for a family life lesson. They put us into different classrooms based on gender, and it was about you know starting a family, why it's important to have a family and make babies. And one of my um, classmates had asked our teacher. I heard something about boners. If boys get boners, what do girls get? Our teacher replied, oh, periods. That was sex ed for the nine years I was at this school. Wow. And when I was in high school, um, it was a fairly progressive private school that I'm surprised they didn't have an actual sex ed class for. But the closest we got was in a biology class sophomore year where we were talking about sexually transmitted infections, but not how they are sexually transmitted, just that they're an infection. Hmm. And here's what they are. Learn how to spell them, know what it you know entails, but not how to prevent getting them. So it was very science without the prevention aspect. And in the home front, my parents just never spoke of it. There was definitely a stigma whenever there was public displays of affection that we'd see around us in TV or in the real world. And in our family, there was an unplanned pregnancy from one of my extended relatives, and I had knew of this, but. My parents were very uncomfortable with this news, and I just remember being in the car with my older brother in the back seats, and this news had dropped that week, and we were in the car driving. My mom just turned around, and out of the blue, no context provided, but we knew what the context was. She said, that will never happen to you. And that was it. I would say those all fall under the sex talks that I've had as a child, but the fact that I can even name the number of them and exactly how they went is a testament to how scarce it was and how ineffective. I had a very awkward conversation with my dad in his Volvo station wagon. I sort of already knew because we had had that, I think the kind of unit you were talking about in my public school where, you know, the boys and girls get split up and the boys get the little mini travel size deodorants and you watch this like miracle of life movie or some, something mm. like that. Mm -hmm. And my dad literally said, the penis is inserted into the vagina. That was the whole talk. And it was super awkward. And like, that was it. Yeah, but it was probably more than what most parents would say. I was going to say yeah. that that's pretty A plus because your father said the actual terminology. You're right, actually. And correctly. Right. I should give and him some he, props. And he disclosed one form of intercourse that exists. That's right. Right. That That's is right. progressive. Go, Dad. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Maybe I've been thinking of it wrong all these years. <laughs> How about you, Sadia? I grew up in Pakistan, Shah Jahan. There was yeah. no concept of having this kind of conversation. And I believe my parents probably thought that my older sister would have that conversation or a cousin would have that conversation, which is pretty much the norm, right? So you'll ask your sister or your friends about sex. And that too, when you were in like late teens, early 20s, I had no idea how it happened until later in life. I mean, I do have cousins and family friends who relied on porn to learn about it. But that's basically the crux of how conversations happened at least 20 years ago. I don't know how they happen now. It still happens in that way where they learn through mainstream porn. Yeah. And and they're not talking about it elsewhere. That's still a very common practice, unfortunately. And it's why I have this job. So Justine, talking about your job. So first, kudos to you for including 
porn literacy. I mean, I am so glad you're doing that. It is so important. But there's something else that you talk about a lot is how you tie colonialism to sex shaming and stigma around sex, especially countries like Pakistan that were primarily colonized by Western Europeans. Now, for our listeners, can you explain how colonialism is tied to sex shaming? Because a lot of our listeners may not even know the connection. Well, so much of our world is centered on whiteness. And that could be under colonization. That could be under specifically white supremacy, especially in the United States. It could be under the patriarchy. There's so much overlap with all three of those. And a lot of it is also tied to perpetuating capitalism. And so when we have things centered on whiteness and white culture, it means that despite how diverse our global you know, society actually is, things have been erased. Things have been erased. Indigenous practices have been erased. Beliefs and values have been erased because whiteness was deemed to be the more powerful race. And so part of my work in the decolonization movement when it comes to sexuality is really decentering from whiteness so that we can understand what our roots really were before they were um, invaded and erased from, from us and our heritage. And so that colonial mentality was very much a part of making sure that they can maintain control over other people. And part of that weaponized sex, part of that objectified women and girls. And that is something that's still happening, even if we're not in a state of you know constant warfare. But when we talk about something like, for example, how Asian women are portrayed in media, in dating apps, and especially in mainstream porn, there's a fetishization, there's an exotification of us, which basically others us as not the normal. And this all started because of what happened in our histories as comfort women, as mail order brides. And, you know, Full Metal Jackets movie where the Asian woman says to two military soldiers, you know, I love you long time. I love you long time. And then that has become such a famous line in so many other aspects of pop culture now. So when we're seeing that experience happen in media and in our history, it makes sense that people's personal experiences like on dating apps is going to have a similar feel to that, where someone will text me and say things like, oh, I've always wanted a Filipino wife because you're so subservient. Where did you get that idea from? Right. Or, wow, you must be really tight because you have smaller pussies just because you're smaller people. Right. Um, And these are people's like opening lines to me. And you know, where does that come from? They don't see any of those things on my profile, but because they've already been socialized to believe that that's how me, as a person of, you know, Asian descent, we're all the same because of how that's been a model minority, you know, myth of that we're just all the same. And then it just compounds their experience on thinking, well, I can dominate you because I've expected and always known your people to be a certain way. That's all stemming from whiteness. And when I talk about porn literacy, I have my high school students consider what the genres are that these porn companies have even created. 
You'll see black in terms of ebony. You'll see Indian. You'll see Asian. You'll see hentai, anime, Japanese, Korean, Asian MILF. But you don't see white. You might see British. I've seen that once, but that doesn't necessarily mean white. Why do you think that is the case? Because white is the template. White is the norm. So they might have blonde and brunette, but that could apply to anyone who's just dyeing their hair, blonde or brunette. But whiteness is the standard. It's the status quo. So everything else is exotic and is othered. And that's why there's a category for every other race except white. Along the lines of the colonialism discussion, I'm not 100% sure how to ask this question, so maybe go on a little journey with me here for a second. (laughs) There's this idea that places that are like, quote unquote, not Western are sexually repressive. You see this a lot, especially with Muslim countries. Saadi and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday, but just thinking about through the lens of colonialism for Saadi and I both being from the Indian subcontinent for Pakistani, while I'm not an expert on it, I'm pretty sure was a pretty sexually liberated place. There's pre-colonial gender fluidity and stuff that was there. And so what do you think are some of these things that are conveniently maybe forgotten? What do you think the colonialism element has to do with that discussion? And I'm not sure if that applies to work that you know that you do in the Philippines as well, which we'll definitely get to with Roots of Health, but just in terms of that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I understand your question. I think that this is where the patriarchy part comes into play with colonialism. Because in pre-colonial times, right, you see that fluidity and that diversity in what gender identity can be and sexual identities. But when we understand gender roles and the history of them, it really is rooted in men wanting to maintain or gain power over another entity. And that power means, well, how can I control women who biologically are able to create life and help to multiply our you know, human race? That's a very powerful reproductive trait that I cannot do. But if I confine her to the home, if I can find the types of activities that she can do and create expectations of what her roles are, I will be able to control her. And that's, I think, really where the foundation of patriarchy is, is wanting to maintain control, wanting to disempower in order to gain that control. And when we look at repressive communities that are limiting our ability to express ourselves or to really understand the spectrum of, you know, our sexuality, there's a very strong misogynistic culture embedded in there. And so that is really still rooted in those colonial, that colonial mentality of like, how can I maintain control over somebody else? I wonder, Justine, if colonialism, and I'm expanding this conversation a little, was also about maintaining certain religious ideology and anything that was in opposition to that ideology, deeming that as moral degeneracy. So Christianity was at the forefront of it, right? Because most colonization was done by Western European colonizers. So I'm just trying to understand if that played a role in it as well. I mean, pre-colonization We know that there have been so many thriving matriarchal communities, right? 
but it wasn't really until colonization that was paired with religion, um, you know, through the guise of, you know, you'll have a better life and a better afterlife if you do this. And we're willing to, you know, crusade your communities to death to convert you. You know, that is a huge exercise, again, of power. You know, what's interesting is as I was doing research for this interview, I started looking at different articles that talk about Islam and sexuality in Islam. And I found quite a few articles that talk about how explicit Islam was about sexual discussions up until 150 years ago to the point where Christians deemed it as a religion for sex-crazed deviants, which is so surprising. And it is so different from the narrative that probably you and I have been fed. And I am by no means an Islamic scholar, so I don't want any hate mail coming my way. But <laughs> it's just interesting to see how dynamic religion is and how we can weaponize it for certain political gains. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's still happening now in U.S. legislation mm -hmm. and the mandates that are in place to control people's bodies and to control how people can identify. I'm not familiar with that, you know, aspect of Islam that you were sharing, but I appreciate you sharing it because, you know, we don't center sexuality on pleasure. It's very much reduced to can you reproduce and that should be, therefore, the only reason you engage in sexual intercourse. And it better be, you know, in Shah Jahan's dad's words, a penis going into a vagina. And that's the only <laughs> valid form. Right. But as I said, right. there are so many other ways now that we can procreate. And people also want to engage in in sex for intimacy building, for pleasure. And that's why we have the birth control movement, you know, that had started so that it allows people to engage with connectiveness that doesn't lead to a pregnancy. Talking about pleasure, I've been thinking about this question a lot. How do we fit self-pleasure into conversations, even around abstinence? Because self-pleasure is different, right? And there is very little focus on that or sexual liberation. Societies that don't practice abstinence, there is a lot of pressure on young teenage girls to have sex in order to please somebody else rather than themselves, right, right? Right, How do we change that narrative, Justine, and focus it on ourselves? Yeah. It should be for us first before anybody else. Right. I love that question, Sadia. I think the problem is we still think that sexuality is taboo. So whether even even if we're not talking about self-pleasure and pleasing someone else, that's still taboo. Yes, there is a pressure for young girls to please others. But then if that happens, she's called a slut. Yeah. So, you know, even there's still a taboo, even if she's obeying the scripts. It's a lose-lose situation. But what I really want to instill in my in my students is that Body agency is really the core of understanding, you know, health, meaning first you even know what your body parts are and yes. can say what those parts are, right, with no shame to begin with, recognizing which ones are private parts, which ones are public parts, and that your whole body is, your, is meant to be like your sanctuary, and therefore you have boundaries as to who can even come close to it. 
right? That's the consent education. But then beyond just knowing the terminology and your body boundaries, it's also trying to gain a self-mastery as to how it works and how it can serve you and your happiness, your fulfillment, and, you know, your joy in safe ways that does not involve somebody else Mm. yet, but just knowing how your own body works. It allows you to be attuned to your own health, your own needs. What are the parts of your body that can conjure pleasure? What are the things that, you know, it needs so it can maximize pleasure? But we go into this like sexual world where people who are starting to engage in sex haven't even known about themselves and they just expect somebody else to know how to deal with their body better when likely they themselves have not also explored their body enough. But the expectation in the script is that a penis has to go into a vagina. So let's just do the deed as opposed to first learning, let me just learn about my penis. Let me just learn about my vulva and maybe also know that pleasure can be derived in other parts of your body. I tell students all the time, your sexiest, you know, the sexiest part of your body is your brain on how you think about connecting with yourself, with others, and how you communicate your desires and needs. You need that first and foremost. So we know our body is capable of so many things, and it's my hope that people start to master what that looks like first before they put themselves in a position where somebody else also is oblivious to their own body and let alone maybe somebody else's, and then everyone's having unfulfilling intimacy, you know, uh, sex. I wanted to maybe shift it a little towards your actual work in terms of what you do on like a day-to-day basis, what that looks like, the work of decolonizing sexual health and stigma breaking. I think both Saadi and I, for example, we watched your commencement speech uh, that you gave at Columbia, which was just, I just want to say like super inspiring. The quote that really stuck with us, I think, was uh, when you said, this commemorates your hard work, intellect, and service in a game that was never designed for any of us to even play past the application fee. So along with kind of like, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your work, start to talk about roots of health a little bit. What are some of the barriers to sexual health for communities like ours, and why are they so important to break? Yeah, thank you for uh, watching that. It was a really big moment in my career, and I was so proud of, you know, uh, of where I'd come in my career to be able to have that opportunity. Um, and so I wanted to make it meaningful for my audience who were graduates of color at, at Columbia because I still really feel that way. We are centered on whiteness in our society, and we are not white but we made it here. So how did that happen and how can we continue to celebrate that and also celebrate the fact that we are people with these heritages as opposed to focus so much on what we aren't, which is white. And so this is work that I've been dedicated to for quite some time and in my own familial roots in the Philippines, I made sure to keep that tie strong as well, because public health is not something limited to, you know, just the United States where I was born and raised. But I saw direct connections on specifically sexual and reproductive health in the Philippines, which is my motherland. And so this organization called Roots of Health was founded by 
a Columbia alum who was a few years ahead of me in the program, but because a professor that we had both had knew I was interested in doing sexual reproductive health work um, around a Filipinx population, she had mentioned the founder, Amina Swinepole Evangelista. And so she had said, you know, I think you need to connect with her because she started this organization out there and you might be able to learn a lot. And so I connected, I became an intern for a year, and then when there was an opening on their board of directors, I had applied and I've been there ever since. So what they are doing is effectively, I I call them like Planned Parenthood of the Philippines, but sans the abortions because abortion is illegal in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So they're providing free educational services, clinical services, pre-postnatal, and really just helping pregnant people or people who want to get pregnant or prevent themselves from getting pregnant, give them the education and the and the tools and resources that they need. And because it's a nonprofit, there's, you know, a lot of fundraising that's going on. And so I wanted to further that connection of not just doing, you know, work in sexuality and reproductive health in the Philippines in in this way, but how can I raise money in a way that can increase representation for Filipinas in New York City, connect them to the work in the Philippines, and also educate a population through an audience setting in, you know, auditorium or in a theater about all of the intersectionality that comes with being a Filipina in the United States trying to also reconcile the ways that we were raised with religion and with culture and other values. So I had co-created this production called Raised Pinay, and Pinay means uh, Filipina in Tagalog. And so me and two other Filipina sisters based in New York came together and decided that inspired by the vagina monologues, which brings about stories from white America and Africa, usually, and a couple stories from India, that we would write our own stories of our penihood and what it's been like to be raised in a Catholic, you know, upbringing under families who were, you know, immigrating here in the 70s, what it's like to have experienced an abortion, what it's like to have, you know, raised children as a single mom, be body shamed for not being petite, Asian, small, like we're expected to be, all sorts of stuff about our, you know, experience, which can be humorous, which can be painful, but really just beautiful and is not represented in media. And so I did this production in 2016 as our very first one, and we raised $15,000 and realized there's something here. So we've done four generations of this now with new women every single time, raising money for Roots of Health, while also doing that decolonization work in ourselves by really picking a narrative of ours that is kind of the most vulnerable and painful that we've experienced, to turn that into something artful. The storytelling component is healing for us and educational for those in the audience. So a lot of different things combining my professional interest, my family ties, um, and then my personal journey of, of decolonization. You know, this is also great, Justine. I want to circle back to something that we were talking about before. And it's important to me because I grew up in a country that's primarily abstinence-based. Growing up, honestly, it wasn't part of my consciousness, one way or the other. And I'm curious to get your take 
on how do people in societies that focus on abstinence still lead healthy sexual life without in a way compromising on their religious beliefs or whatever their definition of morality is yeah no i appreciate that question's idea because the philippines too is very abstinence based sex education when they have it and many countries are not wanting to talk about the actual intercourse part. So abstain and we don't talk about it. So I'm very used to having parents come up to me and say, look, I want to be a sex positive parent, but I don't want my kids to have sex until they're married. And so I get that. And I think that that's why my pedagogy is quite effective and relatable because my goal is not to make people have sex. It's to get people to recognize and step into their own power as to how their bodies work and to really aim for safety, affirmation, and joy in their intimate lives. That does not equal or is synonymous with intercourse. That's safety, affirmation, and joy in your intimate lives with friendships, with how you relate to your family, with how you might relate to romantic partners. I tell my you know, young people all the time, there's a lot of people in the world that are having intercourse. There are more people in the world who are not experiencing intimacy. Right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And so I'm really teaching intimacy education. I'm so glad that you, you are talking about that and you are drawing that dichotomy or distinction between knowing your body self-care, self-pleasure versus pleasing somebody else. And they are completely different things. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I think also the problem is when people think about abstinence only or wait until marriage, what is so special about marriage that is going to guarantee safety, affirmation, and joy? In some societies, at least for Pakistani society, I think it's premium on virginity. And I don't know why that exists for women. Not so much for men, though. And there lies the dichotomy want. again. Right. I mean, we can talk about virginity if you want. <laughs> it's completely fake and completely manufactured. Um, and when we think about virginity, it is another way to control women. It, it started because it was going to be able to provide, quote, proof that this woman is fully clean for you, the man that she is going to marry, right? So we can talk about dowries and how much, you know, but I mean, women were literally property. And so marriage was solidifying ownership of new property. But if there was not any blood that had stained the sheets from a broken hymen at, on the wedding night, then already she's been tainted and shamed and all of that, right? So the taboo and the shame is all wrapped up into that. But what we know is a hymen can break in a variety of different ways from riding a horse, a bicycle, putting on a tampon, right? And also, what is the equivalent then for people who are assigned male at birth? They don't have that hymen to then prove it because it doesn't matter for them. They can do whatever they want with their bodies. They have all, they have all the control on their bodies. So that's why we don't even have um, an equivalent which shows that there's a huge double standard and how misogynistic this is rooted in, right? When you think about the root words ver and gen, ver means for man, gen means for, generate. 
intended, right? So we know that the even root words, the language, the etymology is saying this is something for men. So men don't have to be virgins. And if they are, which means they really haven't had sex, then we put, you know, a marginalization on that because you're expected to, even if you don't want to. There's always some kind of expectation, right? Whether this or that. Yep. And and if you don't meet that, whatever that definition of who you should be at a certain phase in your life, then you're marginalized. Right. So you don't really have a choice in the matter anyways. You know, I, ne- I never knew that that's what the word virgin itself actually meant. That's really fascinating. Being a cis-hetero-identifying man, what are some of the things that we can do other than having, you know, like a basic knowledge of not being an asshole, basically? Like <laughs> to be, I don't know, to just be better allies in the specific sexual health discussion. What are some of the things that that we can and should be doing, especially when it comes to sexual health, when it comes to porn literacy, you know, that kind of stuff? I'm just wondering. Do you mean like as a parent or as a romantic partner? I guess both. Both? Okay. Yeah. Um, So what I would say for parents, um, and I think it applies, you know, parent of any gender, is that you want to be well-versed in the anatomy and the and how the functioning works for all types of bodies. I always get parents asking, okay, I heard the puberty classes are starting. Why aren't you dividing up the girls and the boys? And they always want them separated. And I tell them, because that's not what the real world looks like. We're not divided like that. And it's important for them to start exercising empathy by knowing the science of what other bodies that are different than theirs look like. I love that. Otherwise, you create this like wall and then shame um, around parts that aren't yours. You're normalized more so on your stuff because you see it every day when you're coming out of the shower or you're looking in the mirror. But if you're now seeing someone, a different type of body in porn, let's say, it's, it's this foreign thing to you. And... If you want to actually gain that body agency, it means understanding how your body may interact with a body like that um, or empathize when somebody is sharing something about, you know, um, something that has occurred between them and somebody else. So, for example, like if a sixth grade boy um, understands how periods work, right, and they're a boy who is not going to have a period, they're able to be like, oh, hey, um, you should probably put a sweater around your waist right now. You got something on your pants. As opposed to, what is that? And that's (laughs) gross. You're weird because I don't know what that is. But it looks like blood, you know, and then that's that. And then, you know, with young girls who are never going to experience an erection from having a penis, if they end up seeing, you know, a boner in class, which is very likely as puberty starts and is hard to control, they can say the same thing. Hey, it's okay. You can stay put. I'll go and get you, you know, the book from the shelf. You don't have to stand up right now. That's such a kind way of understanding how sixth graders can be with one another. But instead, we default to, ew, you're weird and like bullying and, you know, all this stuff. But if we actually gain an understanding of how our bodies work, even if it's not like our own, that allows us to connect as humans better. And that's what I want to mimic in these puberty classes of multi-gender spaces. All of this, you make it sound 
so easy and so important. I am just in awe of what you're saying because there is so much that we are discussing today that I did not even think about. I feel like I can have a better conversation with my girls now after having this conversation with you. It's just so incredible. Good. And I can also give you some other resources as well. I love it. What's like one, I guess, experience that you've had as an educator that really sticks out for you when you were like, you know, damn, these kids really get it. Like, I'm really feeling like I'm headed in the right direction with this. I like that question. Thanks. Um, Yes, it was a fifth grade class. Um, This was several years ago, and I had just started uh, our unit to talk about the spectrum of gender. And this was getting some pushback from some administrators like, oh, I don't know if kids are ready to, you know, hear this language about what transgender means. And I said, you know, you probably have a trans kid already. They're just not out. And they're like, "Okay, okay, we trust you. So I did the lesson and I was, you know, giving them just basic vocabulary. And we talked about, um, you know, these terms, cisgender versus transgender. And, you know, I would say to them, cisgender is someone who identifies with what they were assigned at birth. So if somebody was assigned girl at birth, as they grew older, they felt they also do feel like they are a girl and they are a girl. So they're a cisgender girl. If someone was assigned girl at birth, but as they grew up, they realized this doesn't fit me, they feel and are a boy, then they're a transgender boy. And so somebody said, why do we even have the word cisgender? Why don't we just call them normal? And this was in fifth grade. And I said, thank you for asking that. Does anyone want to try to answer it? And then a peer raise their hand, fifth grade, mind you. So this is like 10. Um, So a peer who's 10 years old raises their hand and said, we don't use the word normal because for a trans kid, that's what normal is to them. Wow. And I like started to get emotional and I rarely like break my poker face because I've been in, you know, this game for a while, but I hadn't heard it phrased in like 10 year old a 10-year-old lens. And I was so moved by that response. And the the peer who had initially said, why don't we just call it normal, just said, oh, that makes sense. And, if and that's they just same, moved on, right? And yeah, they just moved on thing. to the next that's thing. What, yeah. And if, if that same, you know, content or script were to play out in the House of Representatives with adults, <laughs> God right? Forbid. It would not be anything like that. And that was so beautiful to me, being in an, you know, an elementary classroom space where their adults did not believe they were ready for this. It was age inappropriate. It's not relevant to them. And to hear them understand, you know, what I was teaching to such a deep level to be able to interpret it to appear and already even teach it to appear in in words that were different than my own. I mean, I was like, this is such a beautiful thing. And what if this is what we cultivated in our young people in schools? But we don't trust kids. We don't trust their ability. But it's more that we didn't trust ourselves as adults to bring that because we never got it. But if we give them a chance, they're going to understand it. And here's evidence of that. 
That's that's incredible. Normally we ask our guests how to define America in a word or a sentence. We we normally do that. I am thinking maybe we can change it for you and ask you to define love, whether it's self-love or love for others, in the context of the work that you do. So the question is, define love? Yeah. Ugh. I didn't know this was going to be rigorous. (laughs) How would I define love? Oh, my. Love is an appreciation of self. I'm going to go with that. I like that. Because I think if we can appreciate ourselves fully in that way, yes, then you love yourself. But then you also know what you are deserving of when you engage with other people. Yeah. Where can people find your work? Are there any resources you want to share with folks who are listening, especially parents, if they are listening? Definitely. I'll start with the resources. My favorite resource for parents is Sex Positive Families. Um, It's um, a website. It's an Instagram. It's on the Mighty Network. Um, And Melissa Carnegie, who's the founder, has a plethora of very highly organized resources when it comes to books or articles um, or podcasts that are all sex positive and vetted um, by the organization. And um, I recommend that to everyone. There's also a book called Sex Positive Parenting that is a very fast read um, and extremely relevant. So that's my number one recommendation. Um, For actual young people that, you know, these parents might have, because that is resources for, those are mainly resources for you, is amaze.org. It's a video resource, completely free. You watch these two to four minute cartoon videos that are extremely inclusive, sex positive, and covers all sorts of topics as to how to understand periods. Um, why do boners happen? Why do I get moody as you know uh, someone starting puberty? What can I expect from puberty? So it's really geared towards um, middle school students, and I use that all the time in my classes, and it really helps get the conversation going. Um, Um, And for parents, it helps them to just press play and then have a discussion with their kid without having to actually do the harder work, which is giving them all of that information that they might not even know or feel comfortable sharing. Now you're just talking about a video. Um, So those are my two favorite resources for sex ed. Um, you can learn more about work that I've done and see other types of, you know, things that I've been um, filmed for on my website, which is justinefonte.com. And then on Instagram, you can follow my personal um, account, which is I'm Justine AF. And then what Sadia was talking about with my boundary setting account, where I am a ghostwriter to help you send those text messages you avoid sending because setting boundaries is difficult. You just DM underscore good period buys underscore and I will customize a boundary for you to send somebody. You can also peruse the grid for many templates on uh, how to break up with someone when you feel bad about it but you know you got to do it. How to assert yourself with a body shaming mother-in-law that you have to see that weekend. Um, (laughs) How you talk to a colleague at work who is taking credit for all of the work that you've actually done for the project all sorts of different boundary setting. Um, I am happy to, you know, gift or be donated some money to Roots of Health, actually, to help you with your um, boundary setting needs. 
Wonderful. We'll have all that information in the episode notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justine. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in. That's all for this week. To learn more about this episode and to stay in the loop on all things Immigrantly, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at Immigrantly pod. Immigrantly is produced by Kylie C. Roberts, Eliza Kazmi, and me, Sadia Khan, as the executive producer. Today's episode was written by Ashley Linuza, edited by Bronte Cook, and produced by Kylie C. Roberts and me, with help from Asit Bhatt from Refillion Media. Until next time, take care. Thank you.